Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Center Presbyterian Church. We are grateful to have you with us here this morning in person, and also hello to everyone who is joining us live online. Well, now as we uh, get ready for our service, I just want to invite you to take a moment, uh, bow your heads. We're going to prepare ourselves for worship by reminding ourselves that God is present. However you're coming in to the building this morning, whether you're rushing, whether you feel like you're just catching your breath, uh, we know that our God cares for us. He's here with us. And let's take a moment to connect with him. This is the third week of Advent, the season where we are preparing ourselves for the coming of the Lord. And this week we have the Woods family here to light for us the third Advent candle, which is the candle of joy. The first week of Advent, we lift the hope candle. We lit the hope candle in recognition of the hope we have in Christ. Last week we lit the candle of peace as we thought about the day Christ will finally bring peace on earth. This week we are halfway to Christmas, and we light the candle of joy in recognition that Christ's coming is good news for the world. Joy is different from mere happiness. Joy is not tied to our circumstances. Instead, it comes from the confidence we have in our unchanging Savior. As the song proclaims, shepherds, why this jubilee? Why your joyous strains prolong? Come to Bethlehem and see Christ the Lord, the newborn King. This passage in Zechariah calls God's people to rejoice at the coming of a Savior who will set the prisoners free. Zechariah 9, 9-12 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will free your prisoners from the waterless pit. Return to your fortress, you prisoners of hope. Even now I announce that I will restore twice as much to you. This morning as we approach the word of God, we are studying the book of Nehemiah. And so for those of you who are worshiping with us online, we want to invite you to open your Bibles as we, uh, as we take a gander at what it is that God has expected, not only the people of Jeremiah's day, but the people of our own day. Those who sealed it, sealed what? Well, in the previous verse, we discover that they're making an agreement, a promise to God and to each other. Those who sealed this agreement were Nehemiah, the governor, and the son of Hakaliah. And then if you go down and look further, there were the priests who signed it, and then the Levites, and they are listed. And then in verse 14, the leaders of the people, and their names are listed. And then you go further down to Uh, verse 28 and the rest of the chapter is this the rest of the people priests, Levites, gatekeepers musicians temple servants and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who were able to understand all these now join their their fellow israelites the nobles and bound themselves with a curse and an oath to follow the law of god given through moses the servant of god and to obey carefully all the commands regulations and decrees of the Lord our Lord here is what they said in their oath we promise now to give not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons 
when the neighboring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. Every seventh year, we will forego working the land and we cancel all debts. We, ass we assume the responsibility for carrying out the commands to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of our God, for the bread set out on the table, for the regular grain offerings and burnt offerings, for the offerings on the Sabbath, at the new moon fate feast, and at the appointed festivals, for the holy offerings, for sin offerings, and to make atonement for Israel, and for all the day duties of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people, have cast lots to determine when each of our families is to bring into or in the house of our God and set times each year a contribution of wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as it is written in the law. We also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first fruits of our crops and of every fruit tree, as it is also written in the law. We will bring the first fruits of our sons and of our cattle, of our herds and of the, uh, and of the flocks of the house to the house of our Lord, to the priest ministering there. Moreover, we will bring to the storehouse of the house of our God to the priests and the first of our ground meats, of our grain offerings and the fruits of all of our, our trees and of our new wine and olive oil. And we will bring a tithe of our crops to the Levites, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we work. The priests descended from Aaron, is to accompany the Levites when they receive the tithes and the, and, the, uh, and the Levites are to bring a tenth of the tithes up to the house of our God, to the storeroom of the treasury. The people of Israel, including the Levites, are to bring their contributions of grain, new wine and olive oil to the to the storerooms where the articles for the sanctuary and for the ministering priest, the gatekeepers and the musicians are also kept. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. I want to ask Dick if you would adjust the thermostat so that we have the air blowing here, over here and over here, if you'd come and do that now. As he does that, I want to ask if you'll join me in prayer. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and our Father, as we study your word this morning, it is our prayer that we understand what it is that you are asking of us and that you would help us to know how it is that you are to be worshipped. We honestly pray and ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people of God said together, I don't know about you, but as we go through the book of Nehemiah, one of the things that startles me is how sinful the people of God had really become. You see, the book of Nehemiah records for us a people who are trying to reclaim God's promise for their life. They have been in exile because of the fact that they had sinned against the Lord greatly. And God had warned them in Deuteronomy that the day that it happened, that they turned away from the living God, that they would be spewed out of the land, literally thrown up out of the land. And so this covenant that God made with the Israelites, the covenant that he would be their God and they would be his people, and they would possess a land of promise, that covenant of the land of promise was called a conditional covenant. And so it was conditional in this one sense. 
As long as they obeyed and worshiped the Lord, he would protect them and bless them and keep them. But the day they turned from him, even their enemies would overcome them and they would be led into slavery. And that's exactly what happened. And so Nehemiah has been a book that we've studied about how God also made the promise that the day that they did turn from him and return to him when they repented and they cried out to the Lord, he would once again intervene and save them, which is exactly what's happened. That's the story of Nehemiah. Well, in this chapter, we come to the place where now the walls have been rebuilt. The hopes are, are great and high among the people that now God has kept his second promise to restore us. And in that promise to restore us, he is now going to allow us to be blessed as a nation, to be a people that all other nations will identify as a people of God. And in that being identified as a people of God, the purpose of their life was not to live for themselves, it was to live for the glory of God. It was to live in such ways that they knew who the Lord Jesus would become, who would, who would become the Messiah, that they would usher in that Messiah's reign. And in that way, all the nations of the world would be once again worshiping the one true God. And so when you and I begin to worship, we begin to fulfill something that God has instituted for those of us who live on the earth long ago. I don't know if you thought about that, but as you come into this place, as you gather in his name, you are fulfilling a promise God gave all the way back before the time of Nehemiah. And so you say, okay, well, what is the importance of that for the Christian life today? Well, please notice as we go through the passage that you will see that as they gathered together, they made a pledge. They made an oath to God. Who did? Well, they, sought, they wrote up an agreement, a covenant among themselves that they were now going to live according to God's word. In other words, they were going to give up everything else in life that would hinder them being, to obey the Lord. Isn't that what you and I do when we come to repentance in Jesus Christ? We say we are going to give up everything to follow Jesus. And so they themselves, as the Israelites of the Old Testament, began to realize that the only way to live life in this world is to live it in the direction that God wants us to live, in obedience to him, in glorifying his name, in making his name known. And so these leaders that gathered, the first group are the civic leaders. It was Nehemiah and his assistant. And then that next group included all the priests, and that list of names includes the families of the priestly clan. Now that doesn't mean anything to you right now, but if you go back and look in the way in which God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, he appointed a, one of the clans, one of the 12 tribes, to be a tribe of priests. They were called the Levites. And he gave certain directions to that particular tribe. He said, you shall bear the instruments of worship before your people. Before there was a temple, they worshipped in what was called a tent or tabernacle. And so the Levites were instructed to carry that tent or tabernacle wherever God would lead them. And at night when they would camp, they would camp setting up that tent so that God's presence would come by a pillar of fire or a pillar of smoke, whether it was day or night, and the people would gather at that tabernacle, that tent, and there they would worship the presence of the living God. Now, I don't know about you, but that would be frightening for me. Because so often we think of God as being unseeable, and yet God gave them a visible demonstration of his presence with this form of worship, this tabernacle. And the Levites were therefore responsible to maintain the articles of worship, the tent and everything that involved the worship of God. And so now that Nehemiah has brought the people back from slavery and they're reinstituting temple worship and building the walls, there needs to be a reform of their worship. In other words, they need to go back to the basics of what worship really is. Why? Because what you worship defines how you live. If you worship money, then money defines how you get it and spend it, defines everything about who you are. If you worship pleasures, then every time you imbibe in pleasure, 
you look for that moment where you define your life by that pleasure and experience. If you live for food, you don't go to the next meal without first finishing one, but even before you can finish one meal, you're already thinking about the next one. You see, there's a way in which we can make idols out of anything. We can worship almost anything in this life. And so these people, as they gathered before God, they realized that if they were going to be a people of God, then they would need to rid their life of everything that did not give worship to God. Hmm. And so those groups, the civic leaders, the priests, the Levites, the whole clan themselves, and then the leaders of the people these leaders signed this paper saying, we pledge ourselves to follow the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our minds, with all of our strength. And then the second part of the passage deals with the people who did not sign it, but took part by giving a pledge. What does that mean? It means that they were just as culpable to do what they said they were going to do as those who signed the sheet of paper. Now I know in the days that we live, so many times we deal legally with one another that we want a contract. If you have someone who's gonna fix your roof, you usually want a contract to know exactly what it is they will do and won't do. But in this case, a contract in the Old Testament was just as binding when someone gave a word and shook their hand. I'll never forget the time that Cindy and I had the opportunity to be in Jerusalem and we went to a shop of a Christian merchant and he was selling uh, uh, creche or, or nativity scenes uh, made out of olive wood and we were looking at those olive wood uh, trying to figure out which one we wanted because they were all different because they were hand carved. And so as we were debating about which one to do, the guy was talking with me and he was talking so fast and he said, do you like this one? And I said, yes, I do. And he shook my hand. And I didn't realize it, but at that moment I had pledged to pay him money for what he had showed me. And so when I backed away and said, no, 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 I'm not interested, he began to curse me. He really did. He began to say, you do not want to fulfill your bargain with me? Curse on you. And he be, then he got to speak a little Arabic, and it got real interesting at that point. So Cindy and I ran out of the shop before we had anything else to fall on our head. Why? Because we could see he was really upset. We had violated a promise, an oath, a covenant. I don't know about you, but I think I remember days in our country when a word was a bond. Do you remember that? Well, that's where that idea came from, was that when you told someone you were going to do something, you knew you were not just vowing to them, you were vowing to the Lord your God and you know that you had to keep your word or you sinned against the Lord. The same is true here. The people gathered with their leaders who signed this agreement and they made the pledge together. And they said, we will worship the Lord. Please notice in the verse, it's really quite powerful. When they gathered the rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the musicians, the temple servants, all men who had wives and their wives and sons and daughters who were able to understand, notice that, who were able to understand. If you understand what you're doing here, you're culpable. And then they go on to say, and if we don't keep our word, may we be cursed. And so as this, this huge endeavor to reestablish God as the center of their life, the worship of God as the motivation for how they lived, all of this endeavor to please God, all of these things that they had reestablished in the worship of God, the articles, the, the utensils, the very temple itself, now the building of the wall, all of this was not an end in itself. It was for the purpose of glorifying the name of God, of making God's name known in a world that had become dark and worshipped idols of all kinds. 
And so in this grand gathering of these people as they began to worship God and center their lives once again solely upon loving and serving him, they made an oath. And here's the oath. It's beautiful. We will follow the law of the Lord. The law of the Lord, capital L-O-D, our Lord. Now why does it repeat itself? Why does the passage say, the Lord, our Lord? Well, anytime you read in the Old Testament in the English Bible and you seek the word Lord capitalized, that is the name of God that God gave Moses at the burning bush. And the Jews believed God's name was so holy and the fact they were commanded not to take, to take the name of the Lord's, uh, Lord's name in vain, they believed they should never pronounce it for fear they would mispronounce it. Now, I can really understand that. Uh, I love being called Robert. That's my name. When someone calls me Bob or Bobby, I really get insulted. Yeah. Well, imagine how insulted God is when we take his name in vain. In fact, the commandment speaks of that. The fourth one, do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Well, he, he will not hold anyone guiltless who takes his name in vain. And you look around their country and you look around our texting and you look around our TVs and radios and everything else and you, you hear people just using God casually. wonder what would happen if we as a group of people began to take this endeavor of this oath that we will follow the law of God. How would it change our culture? How would it change our, our lives? How would it change you? Well, as they go into this oath and they begin to make it, they make the oath that they're not just going to follow what they think God wants us to do. They're going to follow what God has written through Moses to give us to do. And not only are we going to follow that, we're going to make sure that we do it so carefully in obeying it that we follow every commandment, every regulation, every decree that God has given us. This is a huge endeavor, is it not? This is almost an impossible task for any rational thinking person because you and I both know that the law of God only reveals how far short we come in pleasing God. None of us keeps the law perfectly, and even they knew this. But yet in their endeavor to love God and please Him, they said, this is going to be our standard and no other. This is going to be the line we draw in the sand and we will not cross it. This is going to be how we choose to live from now on. Well, what did it include? Well, obviously there were some problems that were already existent as they regathered as a people. There were Jews who had been left in the land when all the rest had been taken into captivity. And one of the things that God had warned the Israelites from the very beginning in Deuteronomy was that they were not to intermarry with non-Jews. Why? Was God a racist? <laughs> no. They were not to intermarry because the minute they allowed their children to marry non-believing non -believing Gentiles, that the Gentiles that they married their daughters and sons to would lead their daughters and sons and their grandchildren into idolatry because those Gentiles would begin introducing false worship and idol worship to the people. And that's exactly what happened. It got so bad, y'all, it got so bad in Israel this intermarriage, this problem of idolatry, it got so bad that families would even take their children and put them on an altar to an idol named Moloch and burn the child alive in a sacrifice. And God would look at that and cry out abomination. For not only were they worshiping a false god, they were sacrificing the very progeny of their lives on the altar of lies. The second thing that they were to reinstitute that idea that the Sabbath is holy, six days we shall labor, the seventh day is a day we devote to the worship of God and acts of mercy. 
We will not allow that seventh day to become like any other day because the Sabbath day was given by God, not that we would somehow earn God's approval, but that God would show us how to live life in a way that six days we labor and then one day is set aside where we rest. In fact, if you go back and look at the commandments concerning the Sabbath day, the third commandment of the Old Testament in the, 20, in the Ten Commandments, you'll find that that third commandment is, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh is the Sabbath, and it is holy unto God. Therefore you shall not work, or your wife, or your daughter, or your servants, or your ox, or your ass, nor any stranger in your land, nor anyone in your gates. For the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh he rested. And so it set up the pattern by which they were to live. And you know, it's so amazing. Even today, psychologists and doctors who've studied this whole idea of work and leisure and, and rest have found that those individuals who adopt a Sabbath style of rest where they take six days in labor and take one and use it as a day of rest, and they may attend worship, that those individuals find that their stress level and blood pressure is lowered and that their life is longer. Maybe God knows something here. The third thing that God instituted was that there would be a, a year of jubilee. And, and forgive me for not advancing this, but it's important that as we look through these whole, whole incidences that it includes not only the uh, forbidden of interracial marriage or the Sabbath observance, but the year of Jubilee was a year in which God said, on the seventh year, you shall let the land rest. You shall not plant. You shall not harvest. If anyone has any debts, they will be forgiven. And in that institution of God's economy for the people in the Old Testament, it was a way of relieving people's who had life to go wrong and go wrong badly so that they had to become indentured servants or they had to sell the family property, losing their ability to live because they couldn't grow crops for their families. And God instituted a seventh year policy by which the people would remember that God is the one who gave land to them. It was the land of promise the Lord our God has given us. And so because of that, each tribe was allotted certain parts of that land to possess on behalf of God as stewards. And so in that seventh year, if you go back and read in Deuteronomy and, Levi and Leviticus, you'll find how God was protecting people from avarice, from greed, from taking advantage of one another. Isn't that a tremendous thing? I remember when I was in college, I didn't even have a job, and I got a, a, car, a little letter from Citibank. Do you know what Citibank is? At that time, they had the monopoly on credit cards, and one of the things they recognized was that they could get young people to start charging on credit cards at an early age that the young people would be tempted to put more money on the card than they were able to pay off, and the interest rate was 23%. And that was in a day when the normal borrowing rate was 6%. And so Citibank knew a long time ago that if they could condition people to live with debt, they could make more money. Well, you want to know something? That's greed. It's just out and out greed. It's an unreasonable insurance rate or interest rate. And so God was warning the people as they lived in the land that they were never to abuse one another in such a way that they would hinder someone's ability to live their life and earn their living. Wow. The pledge not only in included these three things, it also finally included the temple worship that they would need to support in order to worship God. And that's where really I'm going to try to pick your pocket. None of you got that joke. Maybe a few. Because many people look at this passage and they say, see, you need to give money to the church. Well, let me tell you something. You don't need to give a dime to this church. 
The question is, do you need to give God an offering? That's really where we're going with this. Because as you look at the temple support, what really was going on in, in verses 32 through the, um, 33 is that they were being called by themselves. They were calling themselves to a faithfulness to God where they would give a third of a shekel each year to the service of the house of the Lord. Well, why would they do that? Well, if you go back and you look in the passage in Exodus 30, you'll see that actually God commanded that they give half a shekel. And so at first reading, you think, well, wait a minute, they're cutting God out of a, a part of the half shekel. They're, they're reducing it to a third. And most likely that was because of the economy of the day and the value of the Persian coin that a third of the shekel had in the mindset of Nehemiah the same value as a Hebrew coinage. So it wasn't a difference of value. What was the difference is the way the value was, a, was accounted for and given to God. And so in that whole endeavor, they were called by God to be faithful in supporting the worship of the house of God. What, what, would, what would it involve? Well, if they were going to give money to make sure that the temple continued operating so that they could go and worship, the first thing that had to be taken care of is somebody had to pay for the bread that was on the table called the showbread. And this bread was continually offered to God. It was a, a beautiful, fragrant aroma. Have you ever smelled baked bread in a kitchen? As you walk into the temple, that's all you could smell was this bread. And it brings back to the memory that Jesus is teaching is, I am the bread of life. No man lives apart from that word of God. And so the Jew would go into the temple and smell this bread. And he would recognize that the very sustenance for life comes from God. But who was going to pay for the bread? Well, the shekel help cover the cost. When it went on to go further, it paid for the grain offerings. What would happen there? They would roast the, the grains that were given as an offering to God and thanks for, the, for this tremendous harvest they would be given. They would take a tenth of that grain and bring it to the temple and then the grain would be used as again another aroma to be burned in the presence of God as a reminder that God is the one who supplies and feeds us and sustains us. Who was going to pay for this? And then the Sabbath offerings. You had the new moon feast where the people would come in certain times of the year and they would come in festival and feast at God's table. This tremendous feast that would be prepared by the Levites where they would enjoy the presence of God in this wonderful meal. It kind of resembles that great table that we're told about that we'll feast in in heaven, doesn't it? That great table that, that God is preparing as a great feast for all those who believe in Him. Who is going to pay for this? The shekel did. And finally, it says all the other duties of the house of God. Well, what would that mean? Well, can you imagine? They would offer the, the goats and the bulls and the rams and, and the doves and sacrifice, and this blood would have to go somewhere. Where would it go? Well, what they didn't collect in a basin and use in rituals, then it would pour into vats that were used in the temple in that day to gather, and somebody had to clean. Somebody had to take care of the, the facility. And so in this oath that they give, they said, we, the people who've sinned against God and understand the depth of our sin and the forgiveness that God has given us, we will give to the Lord. And this is what we can expect. But the giving did not only deal with temple support of the things that allowed for worship, it had to deal also with the temple personnel. If you read further, you find how over and over again that there were supplies of wood that needed to be given because the altars that the sacrifices were burned on had to have the fuel to burn them. Where was this wood going to come from? Well, they, they decided as a people to do something God had never commanded in the Old Testament. They decided they would cast lots so that every family in the entire country would be allotted a certain time and a, and a, a weight of wood that they would bring so that there would never be a lack of wood to burn for the offerings that would be given to God. 
It would go even further. They said, we'll give the first fruits of our crops and the every tree that is, that is picked from. Uh, on the way home, I passed through a place called Mac B, uh, and, and there is Max Pride Peaches, not Mac not Mac or Mac, but Max Pride Peaches. And, and there on the landscape are all, the, all of these fruit trees, these peach trees that literally just cover the land. And I can just imagine as the trees and the, the bearing uh, fruit trees of that land were bearing, God would be pleased as the people would set aside 10% of that entire harvest. It must have been a huge amount of, of fruit. And they would set it aside and they would say, this is the Lord. And it, we give it because we acknowledge that God has supplied for us. And they would take it to the temple and put it in the storerooms. And there the Levites and those who attended the, the, uh, the, the temple, they would be able to be sustained by the gifts of those who wanted to worship God. Not only that, they, they would bring even the firstborn sons. Why would they do that? But the firstborn sons, were they going to sacrifice their sons as well? Heavens no. God had directed them that the firstborn child, male child, was the child by which they understood that their family continued to exist because of God's grace. And when the firstborn child, son, was given, that son was taken and dedicated to God, and they would hold that child up and say, Gracious God, you have blessed me. With a son. And instead of sacrificing him on the altar, they would pay a shackles, a number of shackles, as a ransom because his, his son was a, not only a sign of his lineage, it was also a reminder that he didn't deserve God's blessing, he deserved God's judgment for his sins. And so to pay the ransom for his sins, the symbolic giving of money as a ransom for his son's life was the foretaste of the ransom of Christ and the cross. You see, Jesus is all through this, isn't he? If you studied it, and I wish I could go through it all and talk about Jesus from it, you would be totally shocked at how many places in the temple worship they really were talking about the one final atonement that would be given, his name was Jesus. And then, finally, in giving support to the temple personnel, they would take all that they had received from God in tithing, and they would bring their tithes and store them in rooms so that throughout the year the Levites would be, would be supported in their ministry of worship. You see, the Levites didn't own land. They didn't own a single acre. They were devoted to maintaining the worship of God. Most amazing thing, the most astounding thing about this is that when God talked about the tithes in Leviticus 27:30, he said, this is not what you pay me. This is what you have as an obligation to show that I am the Lord, your God. This is what God required of those who tasted of the blessing of his hand. Why? Does God need money? Does God need the U.S. dollar? No. What God needs is your acknowledgement that what you have has been given by him. That's one reason why we teach tithing in this church. We don't talk about money in this church. Did you notice that? We don't go around with a campaign saying, okay, if you don't give to the church, the church is going to die. We don't do that. That's manipulation. That's, that's avarice. That's greed. And I want you to know when ministries do that, they, they, they cross a line that really is hard for people to bear because our giving is always to give out of a sense of thankfulness, out of a sense of gratitude, out of a sense of acknowledgement that everything I have belongs to God. And I do it joyfully. 
I tell people when they join this church, I don't look at who gives what to this church. I never have. I don't care to handle the money. I've had people to try to hand me checks when I visit them and say, I forgot to get in church last Sunday. Here's a check for the offering. I refuse to take it. I don't want to know what you give because it's between you and God. But more importantly, I tell people, if you don't have enough faith to tithe, then give 1% and increase it every month until you get to 10%. And the day that God doesn't provide for you, that day you stop tithing. I have never had anyone come to me and say, you know, God blew it. God didn't supply. God didn't provide. In fact, I've had more people come to me and say, when I took this seriously and began to recognize why I give to the Lord, not to the church, to the Lord, I began to have a richness in life I'd never had before. There are some things money just can't buy. And God knew that. And so for the Israelites, he instituted this tithe as a way for them to express to God their thanks for his overwhelming mercy and grace. And just to make sure that people lived with integrity, the Levites who collected the tithe were to be accompanied by a descendant of Aaron, one priest, who would make sure that Whatever you gave got to the temple. Isn't that something? It speaks about accountability, doesn't it? You know, God took this so seriously that even the priest who took in the tithe, even the priest who had no land and who were totally dependent upon the giving of the people of God to the temple of God and to the worship of God, even what they received in their work, they tithed on as well. Did you know that? They didn't just take it and pocket it. They gave 10% of what God gave them and gave it back to God. Well, what does this have to do with you? You're not a Jew, and we're not in a temple. What does this have to do with the Christian life? Well, it's a very good question, and it's very pointed. You are now under what's called the covenant of grace. And that covenant of grace is that, first of all, we recognize that we don't go to temples to worship any longer. We don't offer sacrifices of grain and, and animals to God. We don't have to cut the lamb's throats anymore and let them bleed out before us. We don't do that anymore. Why? Because Jesus was that one pure, true sacrifice who when he died on the cross fully paid for all of our sins and completely freed us from the dominion of the devil. That in the death and resurrection of Christ, what God had in place in the Old Testament as a foreshadow of the atonement that he would bring, Christ fulfilled completely in his death and resurrection. So that now, when you and I come before God and worship him this morning, we don't have to worry that somehow we don't have the right animal or the right cantation or the right incense to burn, whether grain or some other bread to be offered to the Lord. We know the one who is the bread of heaven, who gave himself for us and for our sins. And what he did for us, he did completely and fully. And it's not to be repeated again. You heard in some, some churches that there are people who celebrate the Mass and they celebrate it every Sunday. Well, why don't we do that? Because that Mass is a representation of Christ needing to die again and be raised. He's already dead once. He doesn't need to die again. He will never die again. He lives forevermore, ascended to heaven. He is on the right hand of the Father and through Him and by Him we have everything. And so as this people of God that come and worship in this place, we recognize that what God did in the Old Testament through the sacrifices and the temple worship, God has now finalized and completed and raising up through Jesus Christ a church. And the church is now the temple of the living God. Did you know that? 
And so when you repent of your sins and you believe in Christ and you say, I trust that what Christ did in the cross for me, for my sins, not only washed away their stench from God's nostrils and cleansed me and made me acceptable to the Lord, but that now I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And Paul said, the life I now live, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why? As a way of being thankful. Grateful for what God has done. And so when we talk about the Lord Jesus Christ, we are no longer looking to the Old Testament to be the sole, complete way in which we're to worship God. We look at Jesus, who that very Old Testament talks about as the one who has finally come and completed all these things for us. So that Paul writes in Romans 12, for now there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Do you hear that? That when you came to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross caused God to say, I no longer see your sin any longer. I only see Jesus in you. Pretty powerful, isn't it? And you say, okay, well then, if that's the case, then what am I to do? Well, Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 3, 16. He says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? Where the Jews would have to go to Jerusalem and now go to the temple and go through all of these rituals and sacrifices because Christ's work on the cross has finally completed all of that. You have become the visible representation of God in the world. And if people want to know God, if they want to discover God, where do they go? Do they go to a temple in Jerusalem? No, they come to those who believe and know the, go know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there they find the forgiveness of their sins and the promise of the resurrection and the life to come. Isn't that powerful? Some of you are asleep. Wake up. If that's true, then, what the catechism teaches us as the first question, what's the chief purpose of my life? What's the chief purpose for my living? It is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's it. That's the chief thing. I can't buy God's pleasure or I can't buy God off in overlooking my sin. I can only come to Christ and believe in what He did for me and receive that and believe in it in such measure that God now says, live as you understand the Lord Jesus Christ and follow His Word. Well, what does it mean to glorify God? Well, in worship it simply means this, that in worship we are to worship God corporately and individually and in such a way we're to constantly be about the kingdom business of building Christ's church. We're not in the business of building the walls of Jerusalem or the temple. That is the endeavor of still some Jews today. They believe that must happen. But for we who have come to know the coming of Christ and the reason for the Advent season is that we know that we are made right with God through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore our calling, our commission, our purpose for living is not to build buildings. It's to share that truth of the gospel with people and to see them come to faith in Him. Have you ever thought of that? That when we get to heaven, what we will see is not a bunch of buildings. We'll see a bunch of people who will begin to share stories of how God forgave even me. This is why we give. Worship is made up of five important principles that, Jer that Nehemiah teaches us. The first is 
We worship God when we turn to the scriptures and seek to understand what God says and has revealed. We worship God as we respond in prayer and praise. We worship God in the way we sing our faith. We worship God in the way we approach the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. And we worship God when we give out of a grateful thanks that in Jesus Christ, our salvation is complete. Would you pray with me? Our gracious God and our Father, this has been such a difficult passage to work through because it dealt with such minutia of worship in the Old Testament. We could be easily lost in the trees. Lost in the forest of all the commandments that you gave. And yet in each one of those things that you commanded to be done in your name, in each of those things that you gave as principles for worship, you now bestow upon us who have believed and trusted in the work of Christ. And so, Father, we recognize that believing in Jesus is not something that is cheap and easy. It's costly. It costs our time, our money, our possessions, because someone has to pay for the worship. And the most amazing thing is, it's no longer an obligation because you have now given us the privilege of becoming partakers in the ministry of Jesus Christ. You have all people of the earth given we who gather the great privilege of bearing the name of God in the world and offering the only hope that humanity has to be saved from the final judgment that is to come, where every man and woman would be judged according to their deeds. And those who have not repented and believed, they will perish. And yet to those who call upon his name, to those who believe in him, you give them the right to be called the children of God, to the glory of God the Father. And the people of God said together, Amen.